Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's great to have you here in my home. I'm honoured. Oh, nice to visit you. <laughs> uh, you're en route back to the airport because uh, you're no doubt skipping off to some other adventure and uh, challenge. I would like to hear more of that soon. But I wanted to just tell you, in case you didn't even know, that you... Um, first came to my attention I first learned about your incredible story through my mate Sarah Beatty who'd heard you do a TED talk and um, it struck me that you're definitely somebody I wanted to interview so uh, thank you for agreeing to come on in the pink Uh, but tell us tell us about your story because um, the the earliest uh, significant moment I guess in the whole scheme of things for our listeners is you losing your sight in your left eye as a five-year-old how did that happen yeah I was born very short-sighted so I I wore really thick glasses and uh, I think the fashion of them might be coming around but in the 1970s uh, and the 80s there were national health glasses which were sort of tortoise shell frames and Everyone and everyone had them. They were free, I think. So I wore those, but with really thick lenses in them. And when you have, uh, when you're born short-sighted, you have a tendency to get detached retinas if you get a bang in the head. Ah. So I wasn't, and I've really found out from from my mum recently. But at the time, they they didn't really know uh, when I was three, four, five that I shouldn't have been in the playground playing football. Uh, avoiding getting a knock on the head at all costs but that must have happened in the playground and in fact that conversation with my mum she says it did happen in the playground because I came back my glasses were broken I had a big bruise on my eye and and then ultimately I I got a detached retina and lost the sight in that uh, in the right eye when I was when I was five and then it went on we then realized that I needed to avoid knocks on the head and I had another detachment when I was eight, when I was 15. And then when I was 22, the the retina just started hemorrhaging. But, you know, when I, I've just told you that five, you know, five, eight, 14, bang, 22, job done. But uh, that would suggest that there was some sort of inevitability about it. And there wasn't. You don't necessarily go blind if you've got short sight or or indeed if you have detached retinas um i just had multiple detached retinas and it eventually led to sight loss and and was that because you were leading a particularly physical life a childhood because i know you were very sporty growing up but um as you say it wasn't inevitable so why did it happen well i i had a desire to be sporty but i wasn't allowed to play any of the sports that were offered in school the uh, mini rugby mini football cricket uh, hockey so eventually I I was able to quench my desire to be a competitor by uh, by rowing and and also sailing so I wasn't I wasn't involved in any sports that might have damaged my eyes in any way but I was certainly driven to to compete perhaps driven to prove myself um you know to get up on the stage uh, in assembly in school on a monday morning to collect our medals that we won in the rowing maybe to 
showed to the rugby guys that we could yeah. also compete. And those medals included a couple of Commonwealth ones, a, a gold and a silver, didn't it? Tell us about that. So that that came, you know, by the time I was 22, my my whole identity was wrapped up with being a rower. I had I'd been rowing for the university. I'd broken into the the Irish setup, and in fact, the bl- it was after I went blind that the I went blind in '98. And then in 2002, the Commonwealth Games were were in England, and the rowing was in in Nottingham. It was the Manchester Games, but the rowing was in Nottingham. And as part of the kind of rebuilding of my identity, getting back in a boat was a massive part of that. And having the Commonwealth Games as something to go for, would and really just to get on the team to row at the championships, um, and then ultimately to go on and win. Uh, we won silver and bronze, so you've upgraded me ah, to a goal there. But like, don't you know, let the detail get the way of a good story. <laughs> well, that, that's it. And I, I, you know, I, I, I hasten to add that the Commonwealth Games, like when you take out all the countries in the Commonwealth who don't actually row, you know, <laughs> it narrows the field. And then Australia got food poisoning. Oh you come know, on! So, I'm not taking so, this. Right? So no, you no, know, no. we were we were like we were already celebrating when Australia <laughs> were taken out of the mix. But um, but you know, at the time, it was hugely important as part of a, a way for me to rebuild my identity, mm. to feel like the person I was before I lost lost my sight, and it, it was really the springboard for for all of the adventure racing that came after. So, were you rowing along with fully sighted people? Mm. Well, that 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 was the amazing thing about the sport that I ended up finding myself in because rowing uh rowing's one of those sports that you can compete you're I mean you're going backwards for anyway when you're in the boat <laughs> so uh I had another guy steering and you know maybe maybe I missed out a little bit on reading the race tactically but uh, the guy sitting behind me would give me the detail when we should make our moves and I was told I was told that I was probably a better rower um, after I went blind than I was when I could see, which was strangely offensive and <laughs> maybe a nice thing as well. Actually, I'm interested at how your other senses are affected because I've done a bit of work with guide dogs for the blind and they mm. were you know, talking sort of anecdotally that actually all the other senses are heightened. Is that true? I think... I think... It, cer- it certainly is true in, in so much as you use your other senses. I don't know if in absolute terms your hearing gets better or whatever. And, and I think hearing, while it's the one that you naturally go to, you must use your ears if you lose your you lose, lose your eyes. But I think certainly use your hearing. But the other one, which maybe doesn't isn't appreciated enough, you would know with, with guide dogs, that you, when you're walking along, you're feeling the undulations on the ground mm. the the different terrain you're feeling maybe the wind on the on your face when you get to the you go from a building to an open road so using sound you're using feeling through your feet wind on your face all of your senses combined so i think you're maybe just using them more because you have to mm. um and the the eyes are such a a force they tend to take take, take over i think and how much, if any, sight do you have now? Has it gone completely? Yeah, yeah. I like to do. Uh, I like to do things in good measure. So you know, hundred percent, hundred percent blind. Uh, yeah, and I, I wonder sometimes. Uh, 
you know, some people with guide dogs might have tunnel vision so they they could be sitting there reading mm. on a train and then they get up with their guide dog and you know sometimes they have to ship some abuse because people don't believe that they're if you're visually impaired that people somehow are offended by someone passing off as actually being blind you How know it's you? weird yeah. yeah it's sort of weird and um i don't know it's, it, it seems to me somehow more heartbreaking to have had your sight and lost it than never to have had it at all. Is is that how you feel? Yeah, uh, well, you know, I I, I know a, a, a blind guy in Dublin who who's never who's never seen, and we've had this this discussion. He he's not fussed on on not seeing on being able to see because he's he's never experienced what it's like to see, so he doesn't really even know what I'm talking about when I'm having the discussion with him. Uh, in my case, having seen and then lost it, I would certainly uh, like to be able to see again. I miss it. Um, I don't know whether I'll ever entirely embrace it, um, although I've absolutely accepted that it is the case and it may never may never change. Mm. But I, I certainly miss being, being able to see. So, So when you have dreams and when you think about life, is it all based on memory? Um, it's it's a very difficult one uh, because I I would my immediate reaction was to say yes there, but loads of the experiences and loads of the people that I now know, uh, for example, the Gobi Desert. Um, when did six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert? I'd never been there. I don't know what it looks like. Uh, I don't think I'd been flicking through National Geographic magazines and having a look at the Gobi Desert in particular. And the guy that I did the race with uh, is a friend that I made after I went blind. I have a whole range of memories of that entire experience and my teammate that I did the race with and the competitors we raced against. I have a a visual catalogue of that in my head and I don't know whether it's based on a collection of memories from when I could see or from the collection of senses that make up the images that pop into my head it's it's so difficult to to decouple what's real and what's what's made up that's so interesting that you can cobble together images based on that's my uh, friend just leaving the building. Look, you see, your senses are heightened. You heard some keys shangling then, didn't you? I yeah, bet our yeah, listeners yeah, didn't. Yeah. Mark just turned his head then to work out what that noise was. Um, but it's really interesting to me that you can kind of cobble together images and not know whether you've actually witnessed it or whether you've created it. And do you think that's the same about your friend in Dublin and anyone, for example, who has been born blind and never seen? Well, look, I, I think, yeah. I, you see... The the images that we see in our brain, you know, it it's not it's not a they're not real <laughs> they're not real they're just they're just neurons firing in the visual uh, visual center in the in the brain and I was able to I mean to, to give you an example of why your eyes aren't necessarily how we see um, I used a, a a device called a brain port in in uh, Wisconsin in the States and it's a a video camera attached to a set of glasses and the video camera is attached to an electrode that sits on the tongue and as I was able to look at a a black letter on a white card 
and through the little kind of champagne bubble electricity pulses that were on my tongue, I was able to see the shape of the letter. And that letter came to me in an image. Wow. So I didn't see it. The camera saw it. The, the way that it was, the images were transported were, in fact, through touch. And then that activated the visual center in the brain, the visual cortex, I want to say. So I was able to see the image. So perhaps the visual world is not necessarily made up of sight in its entirety, mm. but it's in fact made up of experiences and all of these other senses that we have. So were you able to see that letter because of past memories, past experience? Mm. No, I think that was I think that was based on 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 new new stimulation via a different different pathway, and that was wow. that was through the tongue. So so yes, perhaps going back to this Gobi Desert experience, perhaps it wasn't based on. It would be part memories, but it would be partly experiences combined, and the our incredible brains do do what they got to do to produce memories and images and feelings and emotions all combined to make us human. That is fascinating. Actually, more of that later because I know that a big part of your life now is this intersection where humans and technology collide, and and what you can do to that. And the reason we'll come on to that later is I think it's significant, important, vital for the listeners to know the next big moment in your life, as if being blind wasn't tough enough. In 2010, you you suffered life-altering injuries in a fall. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, things... Look, things were going well at that stage. I'd really uh, become comfortable with the blindness i had rebuilt rebuilt my identity i'd switched from rowing to adventure racing i'd i'd done a race to the south pole um in 2009 and the first and only blind person to race to the south pole first and only blind person yep and thankfully the blind guy a blind guy climbed everest a while before that so i didn't have to do any mountain climbing that's too dangerous but um but a a a british guy called tony martin an ex-british royal marine had staged this this race in the south pole it was the first race to the south pole since you know scott and shackleton and amundsen had tried to be the first to to get there 100 years before and in the interim expeditions had gone to the South Pole many of them but never a an adventure race with multiple teams and that's what I was into I was into racing so um, on the 10th anniversary of losing my sight I had this opportunity to 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 go and do my version of the world championships or the or the Olympics as I said the Commonwealth Games hadn't satisfied that desire to compete and and really the South Pole was a chance for me to compete at a level that I'd aspired to before I lost my sight. And having done that over 43 days and competed in the race and had the experience, I kind of came back with this uh, kind of long-lasting sense of contentment. And that lasted for about a year. Uh, during that time, I asked my girlfriend uh, to marry me. Um, and Yay. she said yes, which was you know remarkable. That's how confident I, I was at the time, because she wasn't you know she wasn't she wasn't uh, 
maddened to getting married. In fact, she said she'd already told me she wouldn't she wouldn't be getting married. So you know that's that's the level of confidence I was at. <laughs> you did it in the magic year <laughs> yeah, when anything exactly. was possible. Exactly, and we were due to get married at the end of July, uh, twenty ten, and I had I was over in England at. at um, <laughs> at Henley Royal Regatta where I used to race in the rowing and I used to go back every year and I, I was there on the second night uh, I went back to the to the place I was staying and next thing I knew I was two stories down on the on the concrete below and I'd fallen from a, a second story window onto the onto the, the ground below and found myself now uh, on the way to hospital knowing immediately knowing that I was paralyzed how did you know I, I, do, I don't know I, I have no idea how I knew but bar the very obvious that I couldn't move my couldn't move my legs or, or feel anything but you know I was absolutely out of it I was in terrible pain very quickly I was on high doses of morphine but I just knew immediately in between blacking out um, that I was paralyzed. And in fact, the diagnosis doesn't, you know, the doctors don't come in the next day and say, right, you're paralyzed, you're never going to walk again, mm. deal with it. There's 12 weeks of mm. spinal shock. There, There's lots of, we don't know how it'll play out uh, because lots of people recover, lots of people don't, mm. different injuries. So... Uh, I do remember though lying on the ground below the window. I just knew that it was, that that was it. Um, and then it it just went on and on with operations and infections and uh, all all of everything that goes with the diagnosis of a catastrophic spinal cord injury. And and, and did the fall happen because you're blind? Mm. Well, it, uh, you would have to think there was there was a, a a connection because nobody knows what happened. But I suspect I got up to go to the bathroom. It was about it was maybe eleven o'clock that night, and so you'd been asleep for some time, had you? Yeah, yeah. And I, I as a blind person, I used to use my hand to feel along the wall to find my way, and that night. Uh, my hand found an open space where, where the closed window should have been, and I th- cartwheeled out. Oh my god! So, you know, the the windowsill was pretty low. The window was was open, and I, you know, if I could see, maybe I, I would have spotted the window. Yeah, yeah. You know, bloody hell! So, um, that was twenty ten. Um, what has the process like been since? Because obviously that's coming up for a decade ago. Yeah, um, I know. Plenty has happened in that time. Um, but one big part of of your drive now is to, to find a cure for paralysis. Mm, mm. Um, tell us how you got to the point where you were able to, A, accept that this was your fate, but B, say, well, actually, I need to overturn that. Well, I, I suppose... During my my time in hospital, I was thinking to myself, you know, I'd 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 done all I had done all the work on rebuilding my identity. I'd I'd created my whole career around bouncing back, becoming an adventure athlete, and I'd I'd built a speaking business uh, with that identity, a speaker, an adventure athlete, 
and the I, the story was life was good then I went blind you know, ultimately then I went to the South Pole life's good you can do whatever you want uh, you know and I was lying in hospital thinking oh, well now I've got to tack on the end of that then I fell out a window and it's all terrible again you know, you can't exactly leave a corporate audience on that low note <laughs> after you've built them all up. So I'm thinking, my, uh, you know, my business is gone. Uh, how can I be a blind and paralyzed athlete competing? Because there just aren't that many blind and paralyzed people around to, to race against. So I was thinking, my identity's gone again. My business is gone. Uh, I've got to do it all again. I don't. I just didn't feel inclined to to take 10 years to rebuild my identity and find another South Pole. And I very quickly realized that that competing just wasn't going to be the same anymore, that going off to a South Pole or a Siberia or whatever, it just, I would have been like a novelty act. I wouldn't have been racing. And... And what going wasn't enough for you. No. You actually had to compete and race. Yeah, because just be like I never went for a I never went for a walk in the mountains or a sail around. I was always interested in racing, not to beat not you know, the aim is always to to win, to beat the other beat the other person, but sport was much more for me about uh, the kind of common purpose, the camaraderie, the having a pint with the guy that you raced with or against after the after the racing was done wherever you wherever you finished and just going along just going along and turning up uh, just wasn't attractive to me so mm. so i've i sort of made made sense of the direction that i've now gone in slowly building on getting out of the bed going to the gym finding out that there was no there was nothing beyond the wheelchair the, the best practice the conventional wisdom was that it stops in the wheelchair, that you've got to go and live life in the wheelchair. And that's very much part of it. So I've accepted that. I've accepted that life is worth living in the wheelchair, that there, with the right supports, there's lots of things that I can do and loads of people live full and meaningful lives. But I felt that I needed something else to run alongside that. And I started with uh, physical exercise, coming to England, going to California to to get involved in aggressive physical therapy programs and that was just to see what I could maximize from the parts of my nervous system that remained intact and I thought to myself well if even even if that doesn't cure me which I didn't think it would um, at least I would be in decent shape that if any innovations came Mm. along that I'd be ready to to go for them and thankfully I've had lots of wins along the way robotic legs came along two years later and I was able to get a set of those from uh, Exobionics in San Francisco bring them back to Ireland I've done over a million and a half steps and that was the platform to go on to the next um, perhaps the most important innovation that's happened in spinal cord injury research to date um, which is electrical stimulation of the spinal cord to allow for voluntary movement and really that stimulation combined with the robotics has been what I've been focusing on for the last number of years because I've now been able to bring the two groups of scientists together ultimately which has allowed me to voluntarily move my lo- my legs uh, while I walk in the in the robot and that's the platform hopefully for other interventions that'll that will come along 
So what kind of time frame are we talking here? When did that happen and, and how do you see the progress being made? Yeah, so I mean, I was pretty much in hospital from July 2010 through to the end of 2011. So the first year and a half was mm. out of action then. 2012. How, how tough was that? Well, you know, I'm, I think what I've learned from the from that early period and in the aftermath of blindness that sometimes sometimes the uncertainty around a challenge is is as difficult as the bad news so not knowing if I was going to recover uh, not knowing what the diagnosis is not mm-hmm. being able to not getting well enough to get to the rehabilitation gym the uncertainty uh, is so difficult in comparison to the worst case news that you're not mm-hmm. going to recover that's going to be it because once once you've got a once you've got a starting point you then have a chance of creating a target for yourself and it's that um it's that gap between the starting point and some target in the future that i think allows us as human beings to to get off the starting blocks and to get mo- it feels like you're moving forward even if you're starting from a tragically low base mm. um so so it was for a year and a half it was absolutely awful um you know and now when i talk about my story which i sometimes forget is actually my life <laughs> i i just jump over it sometimes and sort of go from a, mm. had the accident and now i'm walking in robotic mm-hmm. legs and trying to cure paralysis in her lifetime but it started with a with a lots of crying, um, lots of grief for what I had lost, mm. uh, lots of confusion, uncertainty, uh, a sense that it had changed my relationship with with myself, but also with the people around me, my fiance. It changed our relationship. It impacted her in a way that it's not just about the person who gets injured everyone else has to is impacted by it and has to deal with it in some way and it changes their lives as much as it changed my life so you know there was all of that all of that change and uncertainty and uh, tears and emotions and eventually everyone found a new found a new level that we could all sort of start off from create a, a new future You've talked a lot about the importance of identity and creating that identity. In that first sort of year, 18 months, did you feel that your identity was gone forever, that you would ever be able to recapture it? Um, Well, certainly not. Certainly not in those first six, 12 months because it was very much... Uh, moment to moment, day day to day, and in a way, a hospital system is designed to facilitate the problem. The focus is on the problem. So, as the patient, it's all about you in the bed, and you in the bed uh, are the representation of your injury or your illness. So, on a daily basis, all of the conversation, much of the conversation, was about what I'd lost, about the problem, about the mm-hmm. diagnosis. And when you when you focus almost a hundred percent on the problem, 
life is the problem. Mm-hmm. So it was really only um, therefore, therefore, my identity was the problem, right? So because you were being defined by the problem, correct, yeah. correct. It 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 nearly. And certainly in the hospital, when you're living in hospital and when people are visiting and staying in nurses' accommodation and leaving Ireland and spending weeks by your bedside, their life becomes the problem. Mm. So I had at the time, uh, I had my South Pole flag with 500 faces, all the people who had supported me to get to the South Pole hanging above my bed, uh, above the head of the bed. And when I was particularly... uh, hammering the morphine and I kept saying to my fiance Simon, you know, did I do it? Did I do it? It 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 seemed to matter so much to me that uh that I had done that. And of course the idea of being blind and paralyzed and being an adventure athlete, that had gone. So the question then becomes who are you? What what are you gonna do? And back to this idea, what's the identity? So mm-hmm. I uh, I had read a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, uh, which is a concentration camp survival book. And, and Viktor Frankl had he had been a, a psychologist and had been taken into a concentration camp and all of his life's work had been ripped up. His family were, were nowhere near him. Ultimately, most of them were killed. And he eventually had he eventually found a way to to be in charge of his own experiences, to find meaning in this terrible situation. And in the book, he he quotes Nietzsche. He says, uh, Nietzsche says, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Uh, The idea that if you know why you're doing what you're doing, you can put up with the tough stuff. And to me, that that speaks to identity. Why why do you get up in the morning? Why do you you bother? And for me, that has... uh, The way I've made sense of it is that I... Before I lost my sight, I was an adventurer. When I was at the South Pole, I was inspired by the explorers, the Scots, the Shacklands, the Amundsen. They were the explorers a hundred years ago. I was just down there doing sport. I was an adventurer, an adventure athlete. But I have come to feel more aligned with explorers of all type now that I'm trying to cure paralysis, which has never been done before that up to this point in history there has been no cure discovered uh, has become really interesting because throughout history um, those explorers have changed the reality for all of us by doing things that have never been done before so through their human endeavor uh, they've pushed the boundaries to make things normal like going to the south going to the south pole so i feel now uh, i've rebranded my website from mm-hmm. adventurer to to explorer and like if I'm not an explorer the scientists and technologists that we work with very much are explorers they're not in the mountains and deserts of the world but they're in their labs just doing exactly the same as Mm. all explorers have done throughout history how long did it take you to because that's extraordinary by the way and it's fantastic to get to that point I think so many people are really quick when they hear that somebody's had such a traumatic life-changing accident to say well if it was me I couldn't carry on that would be it I'd rather take my own life mm. can you understand that feeling I oh, will absolutely absolutely and 
and people are people are right to say that because there's an element there's an element of that with everyone lying in a spinal unit uh, all around the country all around all around the world and there are there are a cohort of people who who do take their own lives but it is surprisingly small compared to what what we might think mm. um prior to something like this happening i think what what happens is that a lot of people end up uh, after a after this period of uncertainty finding an equilibrium and becoming largely the people they were prior to the the major shock that happens in in their lives and with the right supports that not everyone has um, but with the right supports people can get on and, and lead full and meaningful lives and they the in you know in the context of this conversation the, the catastrophic spinal cord injury isn't the determining factor on whether that person feels good or bad in the morning they feel good or bad because they're tired or they don't have enough money or they're getting hassle in work or they're you know it's the normal stuff that starts to become uh the ter- determining factor on whether you're up for it on a daily basis not the very obvious thing like a spinal cord injury mm. so so what kind of time frame are we talking about here because um I went to see Matt Hampson up at yeah. his um, place in Leicestershire and, you know, he actually said, I want to stand here and only inspire and only encourage. And But actually sometimes it's important to say life is just shit sometimes. Mm. And actually quite a lot of the time when you had a, a catastrophic injury like that. Yeah. Um, but what advice or uh, kind of learning have you taken from this process? Is it is it a... A very person, deeply personal thing that can take between a year and ten years, or what was your sort of time frame for sort of understanding that you did have a, a real sense of meaning in life again? Um, well, look, having said everything I've just said uh, at the run up to this, you're absolutely right. And Matt, who I've, ne- who I've never met, but I've obviously fo- followed his his story. You know, it's absolutely true to say that life is shit sometimes, specifically to do with the injury. I think I go back always when I think around this question of a blog that I wrote in intensive care uh, two weeks into the injury, and I, I don't know, I don't know if I was writing to myself or if I was sort of trying to send a message to the people who had been emailing and phoning everyone and sending me good good wishes. But I, I wrote a blog called Optimist Realist or something else, and for about ten years I've been speaking to companies and and doing motivational speaking and I was first of all questioning the the topics and that I'd been speaking about to companies was it just a load of nonsense for me to make some money so I could go off and do my adventure racing or was I going to use some of these decision themes to deal with this very real challenge of of being blind and adding paralysis to to the blindness and I and I went on to recall and write about an Admiral Stockdale who who was interviewed in a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And Stockdale um, spoke about, you know, he, was, he was locked up for eight years, tortured, didn't know if or when he might get out, but he survived. And he he went on to explain that the ones who didn't survive were the optimists. 
And the optimists kept saying, well, we'll be out by Christmas and Christmas would come and go and they wouldn't be out. And then they said, we'll be out by next Christmas and Christmas would come and go again. They still wouldn't be out. And then they started to become disappointed, demoralized, and lots of the optimists died in their cells. Now, Stockdale was uh, a student of Stoic philosophy and he managed to confront the brutal facts of his circumstances while also maintaining a faith that he would prevail in the end. And I don't think it was a religious faith in particular, but a faith, a sense that he would prevail in the end. And in my blog, in the very early days, I was trying to apply his thinking as a realist to to my increasingly bleak circumstances. And, and I think where I've got to, which is kind of the foundation for everything that I've done since, I think what I've learned is that you 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 have to well you don't have to do anything but the liberating place to be is when you accept all of the facts as a starting point the brutal facts as stockdale talks about so for me that means i'm blind may never change i'm paralyzed it may never change but i can use my arms my brain injury kind of didn't progress and was fine i got my education i got support i've got a chance there's a chance to live a meaningful, full and meaningful life in a wheelchair if that never changes. But f- to be a true realist, you have to have acceptance and also run hope in parallel. Mm-hmm. And for me, the hope side of the equation has been the exploration of a cure, exploring the intersection where humans and technologies collide, being a guinea pig, bringing people together to solve complex problems. So on that side of the equation, that's what's fueling me and I think really what I've learned is what Stockdale said to confront the brutal facts and maintain a faith and I think an act of faith um, that we will prevail in the end. That's really interesting because it reminds me of um, a good friend of mine who I lost in his 30s we lost him to motor neurone disease and um, he was a a sportsman very active guy and he talked a lot about hope and the importance of hope mm. um, and then he had this huge um, debate row really with another friend who said it was false hope mm. and false hope in a way is more damaging uh, than hope I mean right. I don't know if this is making sense yeah. but I think yeah. um, hope was what kept him going but false hope also really destroyed him from within yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. every time he tried to to challenge you know what was a pretty grim outlook for him yeah um and and then when he died i i just felt so angry because yeah. i thought everything he represented was that he was going to beat this horrific condition and that he was going to be the one that changed things because somebody has to yeah. um and I felt that hope died with him. Yeah. I mean, it took me a while to kind of process that and realise that actually he had made massive steps forward um, f- for people living with motor neurone disease. But what, what is your take on hope versus false hope? Yeah, well, I think you know, it, 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 is, very, it is very much part of uh, the, psycho- the psychology approach with uh, life-threatening ter- or terminal diagnoses um, with spinal cord injury as well, with with cancer, a friend of mine, um, you, you know, I think we all know people who've had, had or or currently have cancer. So, the, so this is a debate 
and is studied by psychologists all around the world. And there's a there's a great sense that there is danger in hope, and it and it speaks exactly to this idea of false hope. But to cancel hope just runs contrary to everything that I believe in, everything I've experienced. To only have hope is like a Stockdale optimist. To only have hope runs the risk that if the best-case scenario doesn't play out, you become disappointed and demoralized. And that's why I think the combination, and I don't know what position your your friend was in, but I suspect from, uh, from the comments you, you've made, I suspect he made sense that of of both confronting the brutal facts that he might not make it while also running hope in parallel and i think i think it's the the combination of acceptance and hope which is almost mm-hmm. like running two counter points running in parallel but i i think as human beings i think psycho sometimes psychologists underestimate the ability of human beings to run two things that are um what do they call it? Cognitive dissidence. Two contradictory points in your head at once. It's, I don't think there. Are, I don't think there is. I don't think false hope uh, exists unless we're talking about hope alone, without the acceptance as a starting point. Mm-hmm. We need both. I think, as human beings, we in fact need both acceptance and hope. Yeah, I guess. Otherwise, how is progress made? Maybe not within our own individual lifetimes, but overall. I mean, when I take my friend, Jared, he lived for seven years when they said he would only survive 18 months. So that in itself was progress. And we all learned a lot from him. And the the progress around motor neuron disease has been made because of his story. But like, why, why would a scientist even bother starting basic research? Yeah. You know, if there wasn't some kind of hope you know like we we actually as human beings wouldn't be here without hope there'd be no point in getting up in the morning right bloody good point Mm -hmm. taking it back to the personal um simone's obviously been a a massive part of your journey um tell us how crucial she's been in in your recovery and this recreation of your identity because you know marriage is or relationships are tough enough you're constantly having to redefine through the years, but yours has just gone to ridiculous extent, hasn't it? Well, it ha- it has, and and you know, there's no coincidence that I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, Aunt Simon has has been re- originally sitting by my bedside researching the the potential therapies and the scientists and reading the research articles and advocating for my behalf whenever I couldn't and questioning the doctors. What drugs am I on? Why am I on them? Why am I not doing this? What are my MRI scans telling us? You know, is this a right, the right approach? You know, so she was a she was in apart from being by my bedside and just being there to to cry with. Um, she was a, uh, an, an educated advocate on my behalf when I could when I couldn't be, and and I think. You know, we went from being we met whenever I was blind, so she only ever knew me whenever I was blind, and we were moving towards uh, getting married. I had the accident, and then, uh, as you say, life entirely changed. So our relationship went from being 
about to get married to largely her being a, a sort of carer patient relationship mm. for a period of time and we then started to work together around the research and working with the scientists and trying and find finding a cure so it it sort of became the danger was that because there was such an overlap based around the injury that it was going to turn into either a a medicalized relationship of care care patient or a kind of work relationship around the effort to find a cure so we necessarily came came together in the in the extreme in the extremes of the injury in hospital and, and she did all the advocacy work that i i said but at some point and it wasn't you know it didn't happen overnight but at some point we had to find um our separate I, I mean, I'm banging on. You're going to have to title this identity or something. Or something. But we had to find our, our separateness within our togetherness with the injury in the mix. And, you know, she had to find space to call me out on whether if I was being an asshole, you know, it couldn't be that I was... It couldn't be that she was prevented from from calling me out for being an asshole because I was injured. Mm. You know, you, you can still be an asshole if you're blind and paralyzed. Mm. You know, I couldn't use the injury as, oh, well, I'm, I'm being an asshole because I'm blind and paralyzed. It couldn't be a shield for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now I'm thinking, now I'm saying that maybe we need to get back. I can use it as a shield a bit. Maybe she's calling me out a bit much now. No, but she's been amazing. She, she has been amazing and continues to be amazing. But I mean, I guess it's actually uh, a pretty special thing when you've got this united cause, if you like, you know, and you've got something above and beyond even yourselves, you know, this, this, this incredible goal um, that, that may or may not happen within your lifetimes that, you, that will be a legacy for you both. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, I think, I think both Simon and I were very aware that um, as a couple we have been supported and we've got lots of opportunities to, to go and work with these scientists. I have a, a running event that has 25,000 people all around the world um, who doing 5 and 10k events in one night in, no, in November and that community of people have helped to raise money that I've used to go and meet the scientists and uh, create connections between different groups of scientists so with this incredible opportunity that I have to explore the fringes there also comes a responsibility to do everything we can to get those interventions out of the lab into companies commercialized and into into labs so people can access the technology so it it is great for us and perhaps perhaps uh, Matt Hansen's talking talking about this I don't think any anyone who is a inverted commas uh, inspiration or who has a voice nobody particularly wants that's not the end game the end game is that uh, that there is no requirement to have a voice because the cure has been found and we know that whatever happens along the way even if it's not a perfect cure by the time I die uh, I certainly I certainly believe that we will help we will have contributed to the search for for a cure and I think we'll get a couple of wins along the way. Mm. 
So tell us exactly where we are now and where you hope to be in, say, a year, five years, ten years. What kind of what can people look forward to? So I think I think we're on where the electrical stimulation that I mentioned previously that technology external and implantable that technology is now uh, in studies is having an impact on people with neck injuries and lower injuries like me around the secondary problems that uh, that affect people's lives that keep people on high doses of drugs people leave people in hospital and ultimately have people dying too too young that technology is now moving to a point that it's it it's it's looking like we will see within two two to four years, and I say two to four years rather than five years or ten years, because when you go for an easy number like five or ten, that's a bit on the never and ever. But I think in reality, in two to four years, we will have. I say we. It's a broad. It's a broad church of people. Um, we will have access to these types of technology that will that will be impacting people's lives. I think it will be. 10, 20 years before we see some kind of biological intervention like a, um, a nerve bridge wrapped in st- stem cells, which is helping to actually fix the injury. But in the near term, I think we're going to have I think we're going to have a big win in spinal cord research um, and more particularly spinal cord commercialization of that research in the next two to four years. Well, that's incredibly close and that's able to dramatically impact your life yeah well look i i hope i hope so um i think that the big the big thing is that in a way you know if you if you can't if you're paralyzed from the neck down that gives you all sorts of problems with breathing infections uh autonomy you can't regulate your blood blood pressure temperature control um all of these other they call them secondary problems, but the secondary problems are the things that actually kill, kill people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those, this technology is going to impact that cohort of people in, in a massive way. Um, for me, uh, you know, I'm going to continue to walk in my robot. I'm going to continue with the electrical stimulation. And then we're developing all sorts of other technologies to go on, to go on top of that. So it'll be a while before we, it'll be a while before the technology is at a point where it's better than the wheelchair for speed mm. um but we're going in the right direction and and you just for clarification are from the waist down we that we yeah. never actually we never yeah. actually talked about that yeah 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 well just so, uh, just so uh, everyone yeah, that yeah. at home knows yeah totally blind and paralyzed from it's t9 which is about the belly button down mm. yeah but with magnificent arms i mean my <laughs> god what an athlete <laughs> i do i'm doing a lot of chin-ups these days yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and away from this incredible um goal of curing paralysis um what what does the sort of immediate future hold for you what are your kind of personal goals would you hope to start a family um that uh, that doesn't look like it's on the car cards at the moment um but i have uh, lots of things i have lots of things that we're doing i've been working with a guy um well i haven't been working with a guy i have been reading (laughs) a guy called simon sinek's uh, Simon Sinek, uh, his book Start With Why, and he's got a great TED talk. And you know, for a long time, people were, for a long time, I've been all about finding a cure for paralysis, but it, it hasn't felt like that. That hasn't been my life's mission. It, it's only by circumstances 
of actually having a spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. So what I'm in, what I'm actually interested in, what I've been interested in my whole life is bringing people together to solve complex problems. And right now it happens to be curing paralysis. Previously it happened to be putting expedition teams together to go to the South Pole and places like that. So if we fix paralysis next week, um, I'm quite sure there'd be some other complex problem to fix. So I'm... Is that just kind of how your brain works? Is that what you're all about? Yeah, I just just don't think... uh, I don't think there are any hero stories. I don't think there are any individual individuals who do anything great on their own. I think w- whether pe- whether people like it or not, it's always part of a team. So I think uh, bringing people together to solve complex problems, that that is where interesting things mm. start to happen. And I happen to be applying that to, to paralysis at, at the moment. So, you know, the way we fund that work um, is by my speaking to speaking to businesses my so i've got my speaking business we also have the run in the dark event we bring lots of people together all around the world in 50 cities to raise money to ultimately spend on what we're trying to do which is bring scientists technologists investors philanthropists foundations marketeers and patients together to find a cure for paralysis but the the core of that uh, is finding a way that all these incredible competitors, these world-class competitors, these brilliant realists, uh, can can find space within within a grander way. You know, the the scientist who wants to use electrical stimulation, or the robotics engineer who wants to build robots, or the foundation who wants to say that they cured paralysis, or the investor who needs a return, they all need to find a way that they can win. Um, and what we're trying to do is find uh, find a way to that they can see themselves in a grander project mm. to cure paralysis and change change people's lives. So it's it's kind of you know we get to we get to work with these amazing people, but they're tricky people. <laughs> so we gotta we gotta find find a way. So I'm reading lots. I'm actually reading a a book at the moment um, by a guy called Chris Voss, who is an ex FBI hostage negotiator. Wow. And the strange thing is. He says, he he sort of says that in a hostage situation, well, you know, sports people are quite logical. You know, set a goal, do this, do that, and then we'll get there. So we're, you know, I had a tendency to think that if if we logically approach a cure for paralysis, we'll get there. But in fact, what I'm finding is all the people we work with are much, much more like a hostage negotiating situation. We're actually talking to people, human beings who have emotions. We need to speak to the rational part of their brain. Why? Why is a scientist who has their life's work um, on the line? Why is he going to let that out of out of his control in some way and work with an inv- investor who's just who's just looking at spreadsheets and hoping for a return on their investment? You know, we've got to work out why. We've got to work out ways to talk to the scientist on an emotional level so that he sees a way that he can release his great findings into the world of corporate America or, oh. or you know. So, a so, huge amount of psychology required on your part. Well, it's totally, it, it, it's not, you know, we, when we started this, I thought people kept saying, well, how much do you need? Mm. So, so, like, do you need 10 million or 100 million or a billion? Like, what's the answer? And, and the answer is nobody knows. What we specifically need is brilliant people working together. And that is a, 
that is largely a negotiation exercise. Mm. Yeah, it really is. Diplomacy skills required to the max. Uh, tell me, how do you read? Do you do it by Braille or audiobooks, or how does that work? Uh, well, uh, I'm on audible.co.uk, but mm. some, some books aren't on audio yet, so I, um, I, I get them on uh, uh, iBooks. So I can, I can listen to them on my phone. It talks back to me, uh, like the audiobooks, podcasts, my computer. I use a, a talking phone. I also have a talking um, talking computer, so it reads it. You can go on the internet and get, get anything and everything. And sometimes I write to the authors and they email me the Word version. Really? Yeah. That's cool. Hey, I tell you what, you've really built up my, my reading list. I mean... <laughs> Two kids, I have to say, you do not ever get a chance to read. I don't know anyone out there that will say, oh, yeah, I just sit down and have a casual hour reading. Because the minute I get into bed, I'm gone. I'm out. I'm so knackered. Well, that's the problem with the audiobooks. You know, yeah, you sort of I wake do. up and you're four or five chapters in. That is so true as well. Podcasts, I fall asleep within about, you know, however interesting the content, with about 12 minutes of putting the headphones well, you, well, in. You need, you need a five-minute version, a 20-minute version, yes, and a long version, you see. Very true, very true. <laughs> Oh, look, it's been so interesting to talk to you. Um, it, just tell us how we can find out more and, and just and follow your progress and, and keep in touch with you. I know plenty of people will want to. Great. Well, my website's just markpollock.com, and that's M-A-R-K-P-O-L-L-O-C-K.com, and we're, we're really going for, for it on Instagram now at the minute, so Mark Pollock Explorer. Great stuff. I'm already following. Done, <laughs> done deal. Listen, thank you for your time. Um, you, where are you flying off to? Back to Dublin? Uh, back to Dublin for two days and then back to New York on Friday. God, it's non-stop, isn't it? Well, keep it going. And uh, thank you again for your time. We'll be following with great interest. Cool. Thank you. At BNY Mellon Wealth, our comprehensive active wealth approach includes five essential practices. Investing, borrowing, spending, managing, and protecting. BNY Mellon Wealth. Consider everything. Learn more at bnymellonwealth.com slash activewealth.